Coming up today, a COVID crisis for sommeliers and bakers, the tragic rise of instant loan apps, and the data that shows why April is going to be a tough month for everyone. Welcome to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly catch-up on all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Temperton, and joining me this week is Matt Burgess. Hello. Matt Reynolds. Hello. And Natasha Bernal. Hello. This was the week when new stock of the PlayStation 5 crashed UK retailer Curry's PC World's website as tens of thousands of people tried to snap up a limited number of units. Limited stock of the PS5 has been compounded by bots buying up huge numbers of consoles, which are then listed on auction websites that trap bids for thousands of pounds. This was also the week when former Google engineer Anthony Lewandowski, who stole information about self-driving car technology, was pardoned by Donald Trump. Lewandowski's pardon was also accompanied by pardons for investor Peter Thiel and Oculus founder Palmer Lucky. This was also the week when Monzo founder Tom Blomfield stepped down after struggling with his mental health during the pandemic. In the last year, the major UK challenger bank, which has 5 million customers and is known for its neon pink cards, was forced to raise emergency funds and cut staff and has yet to reach profitability due to the impact of the coronavirus. And finally, this was the week when the United States rejoined the Paris Climate Accord after the inauguration of President Joe Biden. The international treaty commits countries to keeping global warming below 2 degrees Celsius, but the US had left in November 2020 on the decision of the Trump presidency. But now there's a new president, so we can breathe a sigh of relief, at least on behalf of the climate. I think, well, the entire world has perhaps, well, maybe 72-odd million people aside, has breathed a bit of a sigh of relief this week. It's felt like a a very, very tumultuous four years, and maybe there's a better future ahead of us now. Um, I realise I sounded a bit like I was trapped down a well last week, um, so I've, I've made some adjustments to my recording equipment. By that, I mean I'm, I'm holding the thing I'm recording on closer to my mouth, so hopefully everything sounds a bit clearer this week. What did we learn this week? Matt Burgess. Uh, so I've got one which I'm going to ask you to all, all to guess on. Um, so 12 brothers and sisters in December uh, in Pakistan, they set a record for the new age of uh, combined total age of siblings. Uh, so but my question to you is how old is their combined total age? So I'm looking for 12 times a lot of very old people, right? Yeah, essentially. So you're looking for a, a number in the hundreds or thousands? Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> or thousands. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Quite going for the low hundreds would be pretty unambitious. That would be if they all made it to like eight or nine. So. I'm going to go for 862. Anybody I, else? I say 300. Solid 300. <laughs> well, I'm a little bit more optimistic than Natasha. I'm going to go for an even 1,000. I'm going to guess some of them made it up to 100. Some of them are like, you know, in their early 90s. Well, Matt, you are right and wrong. Uh, none of them have made it to 100 yet. Um, they range, range between 75 and 97 years old, uh, but the combined total age is 1,042 years, 315 days as of December the 15th. So slightly older now. 
Very good. Thank you, Guinness Book of World Records. Uh, Natasha, what did you learn this week? Yeah, so I learned that you might think that the distress call SOS stands for save our souls, but it doesn't actually mean anything at all. In Morse code, it's three dots, three dashes and three dots. And that sequence was only chosen as a signal for help because it could not be misinterpreted as being a message for anything else. So before SOS started being used in the early 1900s, boats used to use a CQD signal, which means all stations urgent. But people thought it meant come quick danger or come quickly down. So many boats didn't really know what people signalling were going on about when they were asking for help. So the adoption of SOS was so slow. In fact, at the time of the sinking of the Titanic in 1912, they used both CQD and SOS because no one knew what they were talking about. So there's a fact for you. Good stuff. Thank uh, you. <laughs> Matt Reynolds, what did you learn this week? This is probably not a comforting for right now, but I learned that a little of all of us are made of virus. So about 8% of human DNA comes from viruses that are inserted into our genomes, in many cases millions of years ago for you know, very distant human ancestors. And most of these come from retroviruses that insert copies of their own genes into our genomes. A truly comforting thought in the midst of a global pandemic. Thanks for that, Matt. Um, so our first story this week is about sommeliers and bakers, but sommeliers and bakers who have been struck down by that very pandemic, well, not quite struck down, that have been, that have been impacted by that very pandemic that we were just mentioning there. That's right. So if you're a baker or a master sommelier, I mean, I'm not either of these, but you know, I'm an amateur baker and an occasional wine drinker. So I don't don't fall into either of those categories. But you can imagine that these are both professions where a fine sense of smell and taste is a pretty big prerequisite. But in this situation, we've run a story where something quite terrible happens. These people catching COVID-19 and although, you know, they don't necessarily have really bad cases of the disease, they get one of those key symptoms, which is losing their sense of taste and smell. And so this is exactly what happened to Felicia Gray, who's a vegan baker from London. Gray, in fact, at the moment that she lost her sense of smell, she was actually eating dairy-free butter cream, which sounds quite delicious. Um, but at that moment, she lost her sense of smell and she realised one afternoon in March that her sense of taste and smell had completely vanished and actually this lasted for months uh, a little bit later down the line she had a negative test but her symptoms were still progressing and they progressed into something called paras parasomia i think i'm pronouncing that right so a loss of smell is called anosmia and then a distorted sense of smell is called parosmia and that hit in july and basically it completely turned her smell world upside down so chickpeas began to taste like char grilled fish skins I mean, it's great that you ask a baker to give kind of really visual representations of what they're smelling so chickpeas like charcoal fish skins water took on a tinge of dilu diluted bleach porridge was like plastic carrier bags and chocolate smelled like feces so despite all of that, Felicia's business had to keep running. She had to keep being a baker with no sense of smell or taste. I mean, that to a normal person would be life-altering and potentially life-ruining to have things, you know, smell like feces and taste like plastic bags. But, but for her, I mean, was it was it a time to think of a change of of career? What did she decide to do next? Yeah, it's pretty rubbish, isn't it? When your whole career is about smelling something, tasting it and making sure your product's up to scratch. It's not great if even the most basic things are tasting like diluted bleach. So basically, um, Felicia, so her business is on, is on Instagram and she basically sends out, you know, I think they're kind of luxury cupcakes and baked goods and stuff. She's got lots of celebrity 
clients and actually she managed to keep working through her condition so essentially what happened is her boyfriend who luckily although also contracted COVID-19, quickly recovered his sense of taste and smell. Her boyfriend ended up working as an expert taster and quality controller. So basically, as she was making these recipes, she'd give them to her boyfriend and say, you know, can you make sure that this is actually, I've not put some char-grilled fish skins in there, right? This is actually still buttercream or still, you know, whatever it's meant to be. But, you know, really to get a sense of... um, you know, the impact it had on Felice. So this is something she said to our reporter. She said, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've cried in the kitchen just out of sheer frustration. If nobody's here to taste the cake in front of me, I'm stuck. You just feel total despair. You'd go, should I just leave it? And you can't because you're in the middle of something. So she's really describing the situation where she just feels like, you know, I can't, you know, it's like, I don't know, driving and suddenly you can't use your hands or you can't use the feet. So suddenly she feels like she's completely um, rudderless in this you know, career she'd worked so hard to get towards. Yeah, it sounds like a really horrible situation to, to be in. And But you also mentioned at the top that this story isn't just about people uh, in the baking industry. It's also about uh, those working in the wine industry. So is it a similar case there where people rely on their senses? Yeah, and obviously, I don't know if any of you have watched that um, that Netflix documentary, I think it's called Soms or something like that, which is about your know, master sommeliers and they're, they're trying to do this exclusive test somewhere in America. And, you know, it's a it's a pretty exclusive world. It's a, it's a world where it relies on the strength of your nose being able to detect really subtle differences. And actually, they're also not very forgiving people in the wine industry, right? If you get something wrong, it can be, uh, you know, you're not perceived as you know, knowing your stuff. And so some of the sommeliers that are reported to to in fact said that losing your sense of smell is so taboo that they just didn't want to be identified they were happy to talk but they worked for you know exclusive restaurants or high-end clients and they said i just don't want people to know that i had to go through this that i lost my sense of smell or i i lost my sense of taste so one sommelier at a top london restaurant likened the symptoms to a star athlete injuring their anterior cruciate ligament which is you know the acl which is a knee industry that used to routinely put an end to professional athletes careers so they said basically you know in this career you lose your sense of smell you're out um you know other sommeliers said that they felt that people with a compromised sense of smell could be branded as damaged goods or unfit for work in the eyes eyes of the profession um and actually one well-known former wine buyer for high-end restaurants still suffering from um, you know mixed up sense of smell six months on said they weren't able to function correctly because they'd lost their way to detect nuance in wine a uh, reporter spoke to someone called Tim Nichols, who was a former wine trader and who had a similar experience. So he's the grandson of the owner of a wine, wine company. So you know his family is steeped in wine. You really know their stuff, trained at Christie's auction house. And basically he was eating lunch one day and he realised that his sense of smell had completely disappeared. And he was really, really shocked. He felt like, you know, wine is such an important part of my life. I just can't, you know, smell this anymore. And he said this quite wonderful maybe slightly inflated thing where he said my concern is now that I'm relying on memory for things it's a bit like Beethoven he composed all this wonderful music but couldn't hear what he composed I wouldn't want to recommend anything to anyone at the moment so this is you know as I said at the beginning sommeliers are obviously you know it's a refined art right someone saying that it's almost like Beethoven going deaf you know couldn't hear the music he can't taste the wine, but he's just going on memory. He's just saying, I should know these things. So, you know, it gives you a, a sense of what it's like to be in the industry at that at that time, I guess. It's horrid. I mean, it, 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 it's funny in a way, some of the comparisons that people are giving, you know, that they're like elite athletes dam- damaging their ACLs or like Beethoven who couldn't hear the wonderful music that he was composing. But this is this is really, really bad for people who rely on their taste and smell to make a, a living. Now, we, we know that, 
people losing their sense of smell as a result of COVID-19 is, is fairly common. It was, it was added as a, as a symptom fairly early on in the UK's pandemic response. But I was less aware of this longer tail loss of taste and smell and this flipped sense of taste and smell where water tastes like bleach and porridge tastes like burnt fish. Yeah, absolutely. And because of because loss of taste and smell is not necessarily one of the symptoms that you associate with a transmissible disease, it wasn't on people's radar so much early on. So, you know, early on, you, if you remember in the very beginning of the pandemic, people would say, do you have a new recurrent fever? You have a, you know, a continuous cough? I think they were the two major symptoms. But quickly, like you said, James, it became really clear that lots of people were reporting loss of taste and smell. And that was quite quickly added to the UK's list of symptoms. So what's interesting is that there's, you know, good evidence that more than half of patients with COVID-19 either experience a loss of taste and smell or, um, you know, confused taste or smell. And while two thirds of these people recover within six to eight weeks many are left without noticeable improvements you know months on and because we're only a year away from the you know the beginning of this pandemic we still don't really understand what the long-term implications of losing your sense of taste and smell might be or having altered taste and smell for a much longer period of time and part of the reason for this is that we still don't really have a particularly good understanding of how smell and taste work i mean i i wonder if you might remember um, learning from school that model of the tongue and where different tastes are meant to be I think that maybe sweet is at the back or you know something but you know the tip of the tongue has a different taste to you know the back of the tongue and it's only pretty recently that we realize that that's completely wrong it's not you know taste is not limited to certain parts of the tongue and actually taste buds are all kind of mixed up and we can detect um, you know a mix of taste throughout the mouth in a much more subtle sense. So, you know, part of the problem is that we still don't really understand exactly how smell and taste works. It's quite hard to, um, you know, understand how to help people when that sense goes awry. Hmm. I remember reading that people's taste buds also sort of regenerate after a certain amount of time. So that's why you, you might not like olives when you're a child and then you like them as an adult. And th- th- all these kinds of things are just kind of still quite mysterious, even though everyone has a tongue. Like it doesn't really make sense in the sense of smell. It doesn't really make sense that we know so little about it. But but it was really weird when people started talking about losing their, their sense of smell and their sense of taste and they started sort of trying different home remedies to to sort it out and it wasn't it wasn't working. And, and it, it just seemed like a very strange side effect so you've got all of these sommeliers and all these all these bakers who are obviously their job is to taste and to smell things and to tell us you know what, what's good what, what's going to happen to all these people and what's going to happen to the people who are affected in general um if, if we don't know more about smell and taste to sort this out Well, one good thing is is we're starting to understand a little bit more about how viruses affect taste and smell. So researchers and medics now think that smell loss happens because the virus damages what are called the kind of supporting cells of the olfactory epithelium, which is basically the area high in your nose where you detect odors. And so this area contains both nerve cells and supporting cells that, you know, make the nerve work, uh, make the nose work and also, you know, trigger the 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 signals if you like that mean your brain perceives smell or taste. Now if it's damaged by a virus, these have to regenerate and forge new connections to the brain. So we think that perhaps this altered sense of taste and smell is a reaction to these nerve cells being damaged or these cells near the near the nerves being damaged and then forging new connections and things getting messed up while the you know the nose cells are being reconnected to the brain but this is you know a really really important issue because sensory loss has a a, a really large impact on people's 
mental health. And we spoke to one ear, nose and throat surgeon who runs the London Smell Clinic, um, a guy called Irfan Saeed, who basically says, you know, it's really it's really underestimated the impact that sensory loss has on people's um, you know, mental health. And, you know, Saeed was saying how specialism in smell loss used to be a niche interest, but now he's seeing the number of patients passing through his clinic absolutely balloon. He says that many of his patients face an emotional toll. They have higher instances of anxiety and depression. In fact, a questionnaire conducted by the charity Fifth Sense uh, found that people with olfactory disorders, um, but 57% of those people um, reporting reported that limitations on their senses left them feeling isolated. And more than half of them said it left them feeling depressed or anxious. So you can kind of imagine, really, you know, we take these senses for granted. You go through the world, um, you know, whatever, you know, tasting, smelling, you know, understanding everything. When something like like that goes away, especially if food or drink is a big part of your life, that can actually have a really significant impact on your mental health. You know, luckily, people are starting to look for answers. And as we've seen, and as I you know, reported before, in terms of long COVID, people are coming together with their own answers, they're coming together and they're helping each other. So, you know, people are suffering from loss of smell and taste have flocked to Facebook groups and online communities to share experiences. So a UK charity, Absent, um, they have a specific COVID-19 Facebook group that has grown hugely since it launched, I think it's at 20,000 members now. And obviously, that didn't exist before the, the pandemic. And their members... They share recipe tips. They talk about ways to deal with um, altered smell. And some of them tell stories of, you know, recovery. So there is this hopeful story that people are coming together. They're sharing ways to get over it. They're sharing stories of their recovery. Um, and perhaps at the end of it, we're going to have much more awareness of, you know, um, loss of smell and how to recover your, your sense of smell. So hopefully there's a sense that we actually perhaps we'll appreciate smell and taste a little bit more than we did before. And there's a route to recovery for these people. But certainly, you know, if it was your livelihood, it has a huge impact throughout the whole period that you might not be able to smell or taste. It's important that you you brought up long COVID and something that's really come through in the reporting that we've we've done on on that condition is that so many people are being infected by this virus that we're getting very large numbers of people who have very very rare side effects as a result so as 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 you said um loss of taste and smell is is underestimated but it won't be now because there are thousands tens of thousands of people all around the world who are going to suffer from this condition and potentially have long-term effects as a result so we're right in the middle of it now but over time hopefully we'll come to a better understanding i wonder if anybody listening to the podcast has had loss or alteration of taste and smell as a side effect of covid19 how did how did you cope with it um and how are you getting on now we'd really love to hear from you podcast at wired.co.uk it's a fascinating story and we'll include a link to it in the show notes as we always do Our second story this week comes with a bit of a warning. It's a story that mentions suicide. So if you'd rather not listen, skip forward about 10 or 15 minutes and you can pick us up on the other side. For those of you sticking with us, Matt, this week we reported a story about instant loan apps in India that are having a really, really nasty impact. Yeah, we did. And it's quite a a horrible story to sort of report, but one that we think is... uh, important and should be should be talked about um and the story that we reported really centers around uh one man uh, in india called uh sunil panditi and he was a software engineer in the city of hyderabad uh, and during the pandemic like millions of other indians and other people around the world uh, he lost his job due to the economic uh consequences of the pandemic uh, 
As a result of this, he started taking out some loans from quick loan apps he found on the Google Play Store. He started out sort of fairly early on in the pandemic, taking a loan uh, which was equivalent uh, to uh, 68 US dollars. Six months later, after being going through various different uh, loan apps that he'd been sort of pushed towards and sort of uh, went through a cycle of uh, taking out extra money to pay off the loans that he'd already got. He was in uh, $956 worth of debt and he couldn't pay back these amounts. During the process of taking out uh, a number of loans from different apps, he used his wife's phone on a, on a few occasions to take out some more loans. And tragically, he took his own life in the middle of December. And although there will be many factors involved in this uh, terrible decision that he, he took, um, his family and friends say that, uh, that one of those was the behavior of the apps that he had used for this loan process. Um, so debt collectors from one of the apps in, that was installed on his wife's phone accessed her contact list through the permissions that were granted when using the app and they created a WhatsApp group. They added her family members to it and started shaming her uh, and doing this uh, by doing this they were going through a process of sharing her uh, her photo with the words defaulter alongside of it and calling her a fraud and sending voice notes uh, in in uh, in the local language uh, basically saying that uh, she hadn't um, made any repayments for the loans that had been taken out and they were essentially trying to shame her into paying and ultimately uh, Sunil's family said that this shaming contributed to him taking his own life um, and he hasn't been the only one. Uh, some analysis that we conducted shows that at least eight people in India have taken their lives after going through similar circumstances um, over the last few months. The, the patterns in these stories are familiar. People are often shamed by apps and the companies where they've taken out money. So obviously this is an absolutely tragic story and you can tell from the behaviour of the people behind these companies that they're not legitimate at all. Obviously, I guess listeners will be familiar with, you know, payday loans and companies like that in the UK that you, you can access loans on high credit. But this is something really quite different, isn't it? Distributable companies setting up really quickly, flooding app stores. So how do these cash loan apps work? Yeah, it's it's a good question. And um, one of the sort of key things about them is that they are meant to offer a lot of convenience for the potential consumer. So you can download an app, you can enter a few details, not too many of them and get money very quickly. So uh, if you were taking a loan from a, a traditional banking institution in India, you might have to go through several steps for providing uh, identification and verification. It might take a little while to, to go through this, whereas these apps provide money very quickly and uh, quite often uh, are fairly unscrupulous. And during the pandemic, the number of instant loan own instant loan apps in India, where the majority of phones, 98% of phones roughly, are powered by Google's Android system. Uh, the number of these apps has, has, has ballooned over the recent months. Um, and basically spurred on by a lack of government regulation and lax enforcement policies from Google and its Play Store, millions of people have downloaded them. Um, and finding them isn't particularly hard. All you have to do is go into uh, the, the Play Store and search for instant loan and there'll be sort of like hundreds of options come up from companies such as Rapid Rupee to More Rupee, Cash Now, and all similar sorts of names, really. Uh, and one group that's been tracking these types of financial apps over the last few months 
what's called a cashless consumer, has found that there have been more than 750 instant loan apps on Google's Play Store. Um, They say that 200 of these apps at least were launched during the pandemic. Uh, Many of them don't have uh, websites and just operate as an app. Several of them have their sort of privacy policies where they lay out what they can and can't do with data written in Google documents. And basically, uh, they some of the methods and tactics used mean that people get stuck into a spiral of debt and uh, the loan companies basically draw people into this sort of uh, system further. Um, They can ask people to install a new app when you're within one app uh, to help clear existing debt. And in some cases, the loan apps will uh, advertise uh, other loan apps within themselves and other apps on people's phones. So it really is trying to trap people. And as you said, right at the top, um, the... Um, the individual, when we opened this story, um, Sanel Panditi, he took up a loan of, of $68 and that became $956 within a few months. And that wasn't because he was borrowing new money to pay off any existing bills. That was entirely to service the debt. So he was taking on more and more debt just to get these loan companies off his back. Now, what's really, really vicious here is the shaming aspects, the lengths that the companies behind these apps go to to try and force people to pay the money back. And that's what happened here. It is, and in the story that we reported uh, from our freelancer, Vasha, who was working on this week, uh, sort of talked through a lot of the uh, ways and tactics that has has been happening. So uh, many companies, when um, people download their apps and, and sign up to um, to uh, be verified and get a loan, they, the apps themselves ask for a range of permissions, which you wouldn't necessarily need to get uh, a loan or, or for any other purposes, really. So looking at some of the permissions that are stated, uh, which you have to approve, um, that we saw them sharing location, storage, photos, contacts, uh, all basically everything on a phone could be sort of accessed by some of these companies. Um, and when the loans aren't repaid, as we've sort of alluded to, these companies tend to follow like a system and a process of trying to get people to get their money back. Um, so uh, from speaking to sort of law enforcement officials who are looking at this in India, uh, we found that sort of if repayment is one day late, the person will be called and asked to repay the loan, which is uh, seems a, to be honest, a fairly sort of uh, standard procedure and what you would expect from sort of any reputable company that was asking for money back, a sort of an initial approach. Um, but the longer the delay, the worse uh, this sort of type of uh, debt rec- collection uh gets and it uh, starts to border on harassment and and issues like that so uh, as, as stated sort of family and friends might receive phone calls or be added to whatsapp groups where the person in debt is shamed pictures are shared voice notes are shared uh, and there have been extreme cases as well of extortion and threats being reported uh in in some of these instances it's a shocking um set of circumstances really because a lot of people would download apps and not really think about you know the terms and conditions and what the app is accessing in no one's mind would they expect that there would be a whatsapp group set up to shame them to share their photograph to share details about them with with other members of of their family or friends so that they could get money back and and spiral into debt as a result so this horrible scenario but but you'd think that google would have some form of you know standards for what kind of apps are allowed on the store they would have some form of of control um over what's going on and that the police locally on the ground would be able to do something to help people who feel like they are being harassed um as a result of asking for for loans through apps is that the case it is and it's sort of uh unfortunately this is 
the action that is being taken is, is pretty belated. So these apps have been, while they have ballooned in the in the pandemic, they have been around for uh, quite a while. And people that we were speaking to said in India, they've been around for a couple of years, but uh, as I said, in the pandemic have grown. So uh, within, uh, within uh, India and the particular region and city, uh, law enforcement within uh, uh, Hyderabad have started looking at the apps in sort of late November when the first sort of harassment complaints were made uh, but then since December when uh, some of the first people taking their own lives was, was first reported the police have arrested 27 people involved in the apps including uh, a number of uh, Chinese nationals as well uh, police have started to raid call centers run by some of these companies and are investigating the overall practice and the different types of apps and so far they've said that uh, some of the people arrested have run companies linked to uh, 30 instant loan apps uh, and over the past year these apps have processed 14 million transactions worth uh, 2.8 billion US dollars um, and at, at the moment some of the um, beliefs of the investigators is that some of these practices might be linked to money laundering and uh, and pro and other sort of criminal activity like that they say that um, on the ground a lot of the apps are maybe being run by uh, by Indian nationals but there's also links to other countries and previously before some of these apps were in India we've seen uh, the apps also and similar apps being used in uh, other countries uh, as well um, so there may be a case of some of them moving across um, but equally there's a problem with the apps falling through cracks in regulations in the sort of Indian banking industry um, the bo official bodies there have um, recently issued warnings about these types of apps and the Indian central bank has formed a committee to look into regulating the sector and Google itself which does have a role to play in this um, has responded to uh, ourselves and also other criticism of these apps before uh, our story was published. It said that it's reviewed hundreds of personal loan apps in India uh, and based on reports from individuals and government agencies and police forces has removed those that violated its policies. Uh, some of Google's policies around this say that uh, instant loan apps where payment is required in under 60 days are not allowed but looking at some of the apps themselves and some of the ones that have been removed um, when you go into the apps even though they on the app store they say uh, Pay, pay in over 60 days paying longer periods when you actually go into the apps themselves um, they have sort of like one week to repay or 14 days to repay which obviously ramps up the pressure on people as well um, so Google wouldn't say uh, how many apps it has reviewed and remo removed itself um, but the cashless consumer group that I mentioned earlier has been tracking apps uh, of uh, financial nature and instant loan nature within India and has seen hundreds of financial apps being removed in recent weeks. Although it's unclear whether these have been removed by Google or the app creators themselves. Um, and Google says that it's continuing to work with law enforcement and the apps that it has found to violate its safety policies have been removed immediately. Um, and essentially it's something that they're starting to look at uh, a little bit more but there's a lot more that could be done in this space and so much of this is is coming too late for people who have lost loved ones or been put in horrible horrible situations where they feel like they have no choice but to take their own lives Google, of course, is, is one of the richest, most powerful companies in the world. Um, and we hear quite often from major technology firms that moderation on this scale is hard. Um, but I think what stories like this really drive home is the impact of a failure to moderate these platforms. I mean, if we were talking about a store on a high street, if you were to walk into a high street shop and be offered a level of service equivalent to 
what some people are finding in these instant loan apps in India, that sort of thing would be very, very quickly shut down. But for several years, these services have been allowed to flourish in China and Indonesia and, and now India. And it's having a really, really horrible impact. So it really does feel like too little, too late. Right, Matt? Yeah, it does. And um, there's a lot more that needs to be done to stop the sort of like situation that is going on. And I don't think it is a prop, uh, a problem for one uh, entity in itself. It, it requires getting any sort of action to make this situation any better will require Google being better, will require law enforcement in the country being better, will require regulators put putting in place proper rules to stop these apps and these, these behaviours happening. Um, so there's a lot of different constituent parts to it, but essentially um, it's a really horrible situation that um, people have found themselves in and one that um, hopefully not many more people will um, be in that same situation. It's a really, really important um, and complicated story. I encourage you all to seek it out and read it. We'll include a link in the show notes. And if there's anything you want to share with us on that story, podcast at wired.co.uk. Natasha, our final story this week um, is is a bit of a difficult one as well, um, although not quite as difficult as the story we were talking about then. Blue Monday, which isn't really a thing. We've been taking a little bit of a look into that, but also some actual data that can shed some light on how a lot of us might be feeling right now. That's right, James. And actually, you know, for once, I have some really good news, uh, which I'm really happy about, which is that Blue Monday obviously isn't a thing. So don't have to worry about that. And if you're expecting January to be absolutely terrible for your productivity and well-being because it's dark and cold and miserable and we're still stuck at home during a national lockdown in a never-ending pandemic, well, you'll be happy to know that it won't actually be as bad as that. So January isn't, in fact, the worst time of the year and people don't do as badly as you might think. But of course, as I always do, I have some bad news, which is that the worst may be yet to come. Okay, so let's cover off the Blue Monday thing first. It's it's not a thing, but just to rewind quickly, what is Blue Monday and why isn't it a thing? Yeah, so it isn't a thing. So Blue Monday was reportedly coined by a psychologist called Cliff Arnold in 2004. And it falls on the third Monday in January every year, which is the week that we are recording this podcast. And he came up with it after a holiday company asked him for a scientific formula for the January blues. So supposedly this Monday that's just been is the day when we're least productive, we're most likely to call in sick and feel just down in the dumps. Behavioural scientists have long claimed that Blue, Blue January and Blue Monday just doesn't really exist. So 2018 survey of 2,100 workers in the UK found that January was the worst month for productivity, but it wasn't for the reason that you think. It wasn't stress or mental health related. It was basically people admitting that they were less productive in January because they found themselves gossiping to colleagues or spending time in the kitchen making endless cups of tea. So there is zero evidence to suggest that people are more unhappy at any particular Monday in January or in January in particular, even though the circumstances this year are very different from the norm. Basically, we could be struggling, but not necessarily because it happens to be January. So it's not so much Blue Monday so much as just going to the kitchen a lot, making cups of tea, having biscuits Monday, which actually sounds quite pleasant. I think could do that every Monday. But you tease some bad news <laughs> at the top of your segment. So Blue Monday, that's not a thing, but we've got something much, much worse coming down the pipeline. So what should we be unhappy about? So, yeah, we have no way of knowing how long this tumultuous situation will last. 
But we can look to the first lockdown in March 2020 to have some idea of what the challenges of coping with a third national lockdown will look like. And that's exactly what we've done. So researchers from the University of Glasgow studied the mental health of people in the UK during the first lockdown in spring of 2020. And they found that a quarter of people reported experiencing at least one problem with their mental health during the initial lockdown. So if you were finding it difficult to concentrate then or you felt stressed or felt anxious, you really weren't alone. Those who appeared to struggle the most were those who were laid off or had young children that they had to basically homeschool for months on end. One in three people were apparently stressed about potentially losing their jobs and 45% of those unemployed were stressed out about not being able to afford to pay their bills. So some really fundamental issues were going on in the first lockdown. If the first lockdown, though, was tough, this third one, which is taking place during the coldest darkest months of this winter could be even worse. The reason for this is because we have all collectively been coping with chronic stress, which was triggered by the coronavirus lockdown and has sent our bodies into overdrive and is wearing down our creativity and concentration. So people working with chronic low-grade stress admit to being constantly distracted by things out their window or doom-scrolling through social media. It's impossible for them to even focus on the very basic and easiest tasks at work. So when we experience mental and physical strain that is potentially health-threatening, our brains fire off cortisol and adrenaline to keep us in survival mode. That's what basically happens with this chronic stress and that reroutes the blood flow in the brain and keeps the resources that the blood gives to the brain like oxygen and glucose for the things that it thinks you need to survive rather than thrive so basically you're in survival mode you don't need to be creative that's not what it's all about your body thinks we just need to get through this and that's a situation that people have been in for the last 10 months or so unchecked this chronic stress can lead to mental health problems like anxiety and depression so Basically, this is a situation for a lot of people who find themselves um, in, in the third lockdown facing the, the forward looking months of, of potential hardship. And the same thing, you see productivity and you look back again on the first lockdown, that can tell us a lot about what might happen in the coming months. So in a study on productivity, researchers from the University of Essex found that people working from home weren't more or less productive than when they were working in the office. But if someone stated that they got much less done at home, they were also likely to report declines in their overall well-being and mental health. So they felt like they weren't getting enough done and that was sort of a slippery slope towards bad mental health. Um, if this third lockdown continues through to April, it could really exacerbate feelings of stress and anxiety that by then will have been commonplace for over a year. Natasha, you mentioned April there. Why is that so important? So it's April, not January, that is actually the key time to look at when measuring our mental health and stress levels, which is again why the analysis from the first lockdown is so crucial. That's because it isn't actually January when people reportedly suffer the most with their anxiety levels, but in the spring and in April in particular. In the UK, suicide rates are at their highest in the months of April and May, which is a key measure that researchers use to monitor our mental health. Experts told our reporter that April is one of the hardest months for people in the Northern Hemisphere for mental health risk. So although the spring generally signals new beginnings and brighter days, for many it could make a bout of depression and anxiety already exacerbated by a potentially lengthy third lockdown even worse. The promise of a vaccine which might have raised the hopes of many to return to normal before Christmas, is now unlikely. And there's, there's not really likely to be any change for the foreseeable future for the majority of office people, uh, office working, people of office working age. So as this thought sort of sets in during the coming months and that Christmas break, which most people spent 
you know, locked away at home is long, long forgotten, things will likely and really unfortunately get worse for people already suffering from mental health issues and a productivity block. So what can people and perhaps as well their employers do about this to make sure that we're getting the help that we need? So thank goodness there's actually a lot that people can do, which is really good. So just like we've learned what hurts our well-being in the first lockdown, we've also come really far in understanding how to alleviate stress and tension in these sort of unprecedented times. So during the first lockdown, companies introduced everything from sort of daily sessions of Zoom yoga and mindfulness Mondays and Friday pizza parties and you know, virtual pub sessions and really awkward sort of team building exercises in virtual escape rooms to, to basically try to boost morale and get people through a very difficult and uncertain time. Now, those activities might not be the best ones during a third lockdown when people are feeling particularly zoomed out and are not really that into pub quizzes anymore. I don't think there's a lot of people that want to do them, uh, especially because they were doing them as part of their personal lives as well. But there are some really good ideas out there. At the beginning of the year, a software company called Rotacloud introduced something it calls light lunches, which I think is a great idea. Basically, is trying to help people get through this third lockdown. With light lunches, employees get two hour lunch breaks a couple times a week without needing to make that time back. I'm not saying it's a hint, but I think it'd be really great for any employer to offer that, especially because obviously once you finish at the end of the day, it's always dark and you don't really necessarily want to be out in the dark and cold um, during the winter months. Other companies have seen the strain that's affected the well-being of their employees who have to work and provide childcare at home again. And they've basically hired dozens of teachers to provide classes and educational entertainment for free in an attempt to help them. So a really kind of easy response saying, I've seen that you've got a problem. I see that you're struggling. Let me help you by offering this service. Others have called people into Zoom meetings to tell them to take the day off, which is a bit abrupt, but, you know, probably works for some people. Or they've tried to engage people in away days and paying for virtual learning experiences like short courses that may have nothing to do with their day jobs, but will help them feel like they accomplished something new. So even if you have no budget, or support at work, or even if you aren't working right now, anything that gets you away from the screen during a dark and dreary lockdown will be a win. Being able to get some light in the daytime, experts have said, will reduce the risk of people having seasonal affective disorder. Some really, really good advice there. And if you need some help or just someone to talk to in the UK or Ireland, you can contact the Samaritans at any time on 116123. And there are numbers available for similar services all around the world podcast at wired.co.uk if you've got any advice that you'd like to share with us all about how you're getting through these dark months if if your country like the uk is in a coronavirus lockdown um we could all use some help and a little bit of support podcast at wired.co.uk time for one of your emails before we wrap up the show for this week we've had one in about spotify and new music we had more than one in, James. We had many emails about Vicky's story last week on uh, breaking out of your algorithmic music feedback loop. So uh, Andre, Malcolm and Rory all wrote in about this and I've sort of paraphrased and condensed uh, their feedback all into one uh, short segment. Um, and they basically all say that, yes, while it is there is stuff that we can do to be uh, trying to get break out of sort of the control of the algorithms and suggestions that uh, are based on our previous listening history. Um, as 
as we talked about last week, they pretty much say that their efforts involve basically some of the old ways of finding new music. So they said that people should try listening to radio stations again if they want to find new uh, music. Many shows are obviously now available as podcasts, so they can be listened to on Spotify or etc. or wherever you get your music. Uh, they also say that some of their favourite techniques was uh, using Shazam for and other apps like that for working out what's playing on the background in tv or films or when we're allowed to go out and about again uh and rory in particular also specifically wrote in uh to meant to thank natasha for mentioning lizzo um as uh, rory said that they've now listened to quite a few of her albums uh, and never heard of her before and a few of the tracks have made it into some of the daily playlists that they're using so there you go if you want other recommendations natasha is available <laughs> podcast at wired.co.uk if you want to ask Natasha for any of her other music tastes and I guess we can we can share those sure why not um, thank you so much for listening as always and I'm, I'm pleased to announce at this point dear colleagues at 5.31 on Thursday evening you can have the rest of the day off run free how magnanimous even though this <laughs> even though this is the end of the working day normally we record the podcast a little bit earlier in the day but for some reason we're doing it right up against the end of the working day so everyone go and have a lovely evening in their non-working chairs and everyone listening out there have a good week and we'll be back again same time next week take care goodbye bye bye, bye. bye.